All right. Thanks, Mark and Peter. Good sketch. Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18? We're following along in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come to this passage. We're going to be looking at uh, the story that was just illustrated for us. Matthew chapter 18, I'd like to read for us verses 1 to 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep, and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills, and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is true, it is powerful, it speaks to our life situations. And would you just open our eyes today to see how these passages of Scripture apply to us and the qualities that you want to build into our life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if there's one thing that you've noticed about guys, it's that men love to compete. Men love to compete, and they can make a competition out of just about anything. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Uh, my, wif- my wife <laughs> works in the primary school, and she uh, is part of the um, reading program there locally in the area. And in January, her particular school had a wellness initiative where they were trying to encourage healthy habits among their employees. And so they gave everybody a pedometer to keep track of how much they walk each day. And I was kind of curious about that to see how she was doing, you know. And she does a lot of walking during the day, going back and forth with the primary age children from classroom to classroom. And so a good amount would be, say, 7,000 steps a day, but she does about 10,000 or more, it seems like, every day. So I'm, I'm kind of curious as a guy, and I'm wondering, you know, I wonder how many steps I take in a day. And we had another pedometer at home, so I put that on, and I start walking, you know, and tracking my day. And how's it going here? Ah, it's about 2,500 steps is all I get in a normal day here at work. And so I really have to work hard, you know, and that's why I try to exercise and do things. 
But then I had a particular Friday where I thought, I am doing really good today. I'm going to beat her today, you know. And so I, I had, you know, somewhere uh, close to 10,000 steps. And I asked her when she got home, how are you doing? She's got like 13,000, you know. It's like, oh, nuts. Uh, what am I going to do now? And so uh, this whole thing kind of turned into a competition for us. Not for her, for me, I should say. <laughs> You know, and what's funny about that is that nobody made it a competition. Nobody was saying I had to do more than uh, than she did. But that was something in me. That was something in me that kind of looked at this and said, you know, boy, I just I got to get more steps than she had in a day. And men are like that. Uh, if it was fishing, and maybe some of you went fishing yesterday on the opener, you know, it's always about who caught the first fish or who caught the biggest fish. And guys are always comparing those things. Or if you're playing golf, you know, it's who got the lowest score or who got closest to the hole. Or if you're a gardener, you know, it's about who got your garden in the earliest or who got the first tomato or the biggest tomato or things like that. We can make a competition out of just about anything. And it seems like the disciples were like that as well. We have a story here where the disciples are now at Capernaum. And they are probably staying at the home of Peter and Andrew. That's where they lived. And so it wouldn't be surprising if when they were in Capernaum that they would be staying there. And they had made this journey from Caesarea Philippi in the north down to Capernaum. It's about 26 miles walking. So they'd have a lot of time to talk. And what we read about in this passage is that along the way they were arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Kind of jockeying for position. Kind of thinking, you know, what place are we going to have in the kingdom of heaven? And from Mark's gospel, what we learn is that Jesus overheard them arguing along the way. And so he just asked them, so uh, guys, what were you talking about along the way? And it got real silent, real silent. And then what we read according to Matthew's gospel is that when they got to Peter's house, one of the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest? What makes this question stand out even more is the context, though, of how Matthew puts it in his gospel, that it was not that long ago that Jesus had said to the disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem where he would be killed, and on the third day he would rise again. And they were grieved by that. They did not want to hear this news of a Messiah who would die. They were grieved, but their grief was short-lived. And pretty soon that had been forgotten, and here they are having this conversation, and they're probably bumping elbows, you know, and kind of jabbing with one another and saying, you know, I think I'm going to have that position of greatness more than you. And Jesus... He's probably saddened by their conversation, but Jesus uses this opportunity to teach them about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, what we're going to see are kingdom values, things that are important to God. And what we see here is that the values of the kingdom of heaven are different than the values of this world. That shouldn't surprise us. And today we're going to look at three of those that Jesus highlights here. Number one, the kingdom of heaven values humility, not status or power. 
You know, our world may value uh, what a person has or their position in the world or how much power or influence they have or all those kind of things that the world tries to gain, all the stuff that people try to accumulate. But to God, that really doesn't mean much at all. What God values is humility in our heart. And the way that Jesus taught them was He used a visual illustration. He took a little child called to this child, this little boy, to come and stand among them. If they were in Peter's home, it might have been Peter's own son. It might have been his child. We don't know the age that's given here. You know, maybe this is a child of five or six who stands among them. And then Jesus makes this statement. He says, I tell you the truth. This is a very solemn statement that he is about to make. I tell you the truth. He only used that when he was going to say something important. It's like saying, listen up, guys. And then he said, unless you change. Now there's something here that he had seen in their attitude or their perspective or their value system that was wrong. And it needed to change. And unless you change and become like little children. Now what did he mean by that? That's what we're going to look at. What did he mean? In what way are we to be like a little child? He said, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Never enter the kingdom of heaven. That, that's a, a very, very strong statement. And then Jesus clarifies things when he says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's two things I want you to notice in this passage. I want you to notice how Jesus changes the focus of the question. What he is really saying to them and to us is forget worrying about greatness. I mean, don't spend your time thinking about greatness or what your position is going to be in the kingdom. What you should be concerned about is being in the kingdom at all. What we should be thinking about is, is our heart right with God? And have we humbled humbled ourselves and placed our faith in Him as our Savior and Lord? And then secondly, the child is held up not as an example of purity or innocence, but as an example of humility. And that's because a child in that time had no status or merit. In that culture, that world, a child had no claims or no rights, if you will. They were totally dependent upon their father to provide everything for them. And with that humility comes a childlike trust. You think of children today who look to their parents to provide for them. They expect that. They don't worry about where their next meal is going to come from generally. Unless conditions are very hard, they trust their parents to provide for them what they will need in terms of food and clothing, daily bread. And what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom is not gained by merit or status, It is gained by childlike trust in our Heavenly Father. And it is in this way that we are to become like little children. God values humility in His children. It is the meek who will inherit the earth. But that's not the way the world sees it, is it? There's a story told about two brothers who had grown up in a farm background... 
And uh, when the time came where they were of age, one decided he was going to go to college and he worked hard and he got a degree in law and he became a lawyer. His brother chose to stay on the farm and continue to work that family farm and take care of it. And these two brothers kind of had that sibling rivalry and would kid one another. And one day when his brother, the attorney, came back, you know, he was kind of kidding his brother and saying, you know, like, you know, when are you going to, you know, get a really important job? Or when are you going to kind of, you know, make your way in the world here? And was teasing him. And the brother who was the farmer said, do you see that field of wheat out there? He said, it's the heads that are held high that are empty. It's the grain heads that are filled with grain that are bowed low. To say it in another way, it's the branch that bears the most fruit that has always bent lowest to the ground. There is something about humility in the kingdom that is related to bearing fruit for God. It is when we humble ourselves before the Lord and allow Him to use us that He gets the glory, He gets the credit. And so when we come and we humbly depend upon the Lord to work through us, or we say, Jesus, here I am, use me, He takes our gifts and He multiplies them in ways far beyond what we might imagine. And He gets the glory. And we see again and again how it's not all about us. It's not about calling attention to us and what we do. It's about pointing people to Jesus and what He has done. Humility is a mark of a disciple. Secondly, the kingdom of heaven values interdependence, not independence. Interdependence, not independence. If you look at verses 5 to 9 again, um, this is a passage that is rich with metaphors. And if we don't understand that, we can miss what Jesus is saying here. When he said in verse 5 that whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me, he wasn't just talking about little children by age. The little children in this passage are really disciples, regardless of their age. He's talking about his children. He's talking about all of us, whether we are young or old, who know him. And then... That kind of makes sense. In fact, if you would read it like this, that whoever welcomes a disciple welcomes me. Whoever welcomes a a follower of mine welcomes me. And one of the primary ways that you welcomed or helped someone in biblical times was through hospitality. When the disciples would go out and be sent on their missionary journeys, when Paul would go out, those other believers who took the men, provided a meal, a place to stay, helped them on their own, were, were um, helping to carry on this work of Christ in the world. They were a blessing to the disciples, they were a blessing to the church, and they were being used by God. But there would also be people that would stand in opposition to that. What God is saying here, though, is that in the kingdom of heaven, God values teamwork or partnership, not independence. He doesn't want us to be Christians who somehow think that we can do this all on our own. We can make it on our own. We can grow on our own. We can just serve on our own or do whatever we want on our own. No, He made the church to be a body where we are to work together in unity. How do we do that? Well, again, we see it every Sunday when people serve in the different ministries of the church, whether it's in the nursery or with our children or teaching Sunday school or in our youth ministry or with adults. 
We see it in special events like BBS that's coming up soon when this whole place is filled with kids and adults all working together for one purpose to help these kids grow in their relationship with Christ. We saw it on Thursday night when we had a work night here at the church and many of you came out to help and we were working on the landscaping and a lot got done in a short time because there were many people here participating in it. And it was fun. It was fun to have conversation while you're working. The time passes quickly. You, you get things done. You get your hands a little dirty, but you're having fun talking with one another. It was great. We see it in a church when we give of the resources that we have so that the church can carry out the work of ministry in the community. And we see it in the support of missionaries when we help them to go to the field and we pray for them and we support them and we give. On the other side here, Jesus gives a strong warning to anyone who would hinder his work and cause these children to stumble. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, he said it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's a pretty graphic illustration. The millstone that Jesus was talking about here was not the one that a, a woman would use in her home that was a smaller stone. He's talking about the large stone that would be turned by an animal like a donkey. And he's saying, you know, rather than to commit this kind of serious sin against a believer, it would be better for that person to die than to suffer eternal punishment in hell. It would be better for that person to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. Wow. God takes this pretty seriously, doesn't it? God is watching out for His children. God is watching out for His church. And when people come against it, whether it is through persecution, whether it is through opposition, whether it is through temptation, trying to get believers to stumble and fall, God sees and He cares for His church. Sin can come from the outside. It can come from those who stand in the way of God's work. And sin can also come from within, from our own heart. That's why Jesus made this statement also when He said, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Now again, that's a figure of speech. Jesus isn't saying literally you should cut off your hand because that's going to do nothing to change your heart. But what he is saying is that we need to deal seriously with the sin in our life. Jesus used this statement also. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he applied it to adultery, to guarding our heart in that way. And now he takes it and he applies this same statement to pride and independence. And thinking that somehow we can do this on our own. Deal with sin seriously in our heart. Several years ago there was a story uh, coming out of Los Angeles about a young woman who was involved in a car accident. She was 19 years old. She was driving her car. And she apparently fell asleep sometime after midnight. And she crashed through a guardrail on the freeway. And her car went over, but it caught. And it was hung up by the left wheel over this uh, freeway guardrail, kind of dangling there, hanging in space. 
There were some passerbys who came and they stopped and they wondered what they could do to help. And then a guy came by and he happened to have a like a tow rope in his car. And so they hooked that up to her car to try hold it. You know, the police were called, fire trucks, ambulance, everybody comes, you know. And there's all this activity coming as she is hanging in her car over this airspace. It took about 25 people... Tow trucks that would hook up their cables, a fire truck with a ladder that tried to stabilize the car. You know, 25 people working two and a half hours to try and rescue this one young woman. And they finally got her out. Afterwards, the fire chief said this. He said, you know, it was kind of funny as he recalled it. All the time that they were working on her and trying to get her out, she kept saying, I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. We can't. We can't. We need others to help us in our walk with God. We need others who will pray for us and support us. We need others who will teach us and disciple or mentor us. We need others to encourage us along the way or to hold us accountable. God values interdependence, not independence. The church is a body and we need one another. He doesn't want us to be loosely attached. doesn't want us to be like sheep who wander off. But he wants us to work together to honor and lift up Jesus Christ in our church and in our world. And thirdly, the kingdom of heaven values mercy, not retribution. God values mercy. He values forgiveness and graciousness and reaching out to one another. Not retribution, not wishing that somebody else will get what they deserve or get what's coming to them. No, he wants us to have a gracious heart. Today we're just going to introduce this subject in verses 10 to 14, but we're going to see how it applies in the next section when we talk about even the concept of church discipline and restoration. And Jesus begins in verse 10 by saying, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that there are angels in heaven. Always see the face of my Father in heaven. Don't look down on one of these little ones. Again, it's not just children, but it's my disciples. And also, he reminds us that there are angels in heaven. Always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, some have used this verse to teach uh, that everybody has a guardian angel. But this verse doesn't specifically say that. There's no place in Scripture that it says that there's one angel for every person. What the Scripture does say, though, is that angels are ministering spirits who do watch over the saints. We see that in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 14. And so there is no doubt that angels watch over and protect us, but they may be watching over all of us in a more corporate way and as we go about our work. I think the point that Jesus is making here is Jesus is warning that God is always looking out for his children and his angels are ever ready to help. And if you think about it, both as an encouragement to us who are believers, is that our help is always near. It is always here. That God sees what's going on in our life and whenever we need the assistance of these angelic beings... They are there, ready to serve. 
And on the other side, it is also a warning for those who would want to oppose the work of God that those angels are present. You know, I think of stories that have been told, again, like with the Jesus film, where there was a group that had gone into a country that was very animistic in its worship. And uh, when they went into this one village to show the Jesus film, they came in at night. And some of the villagers, you know, kind of as a test said, well, what? You know, we have this one hut you guys can sleep in. And this hut, the villagers believed, was inhabited by demons. And so that night when they uh, went in, the people from the Jesus film team, they prayed. And they just asked God to cleanse this place and to protect them by night. And that night, uh, when the villagers looked out to see, you know, if any of these guys were going to be fleeing in terror because of the demons that were there, instead what they saw were angelic beings watching over them. In the morning when they asked them, how did you sleep last night? Oh, slept great. It was wonderful. God had protected them during the night. God does those things for His children time and time again. And we don't always see them. Most of the time, we don't. But they are there and they are present even as we meet and worship this morning. And then Jesus gives this example to also illustrate how much the Father cares for us. It's a story of the shepherd and the lost sheep. Uh, Luke tells this story also in his Gospel where he goes through um, the prodigal son and he goes through the, the lost sheep and the lost coin and all of those. But in Luke, the story is applied in a different way. There it's about rescuing or finding the unbeliever who is lost and bringing them to Christ. In Matthew's Gospel, this is about believers. It's about a believer who has wandered astray. And what should our attitude be toward them? And he tells us here this story of a shepherd who would go after the one that was lost, leaving the ninety-nine. And when he finds that one that was lost, he rejoices more over that one than over all the rest. You know, I look at that and I think about the sketch today too. And I think that there are very few shepherds that would leave the 99 to look for the one. Unless there was someone to care for those 99 and to make sure that they all stay together, if that shepherd leaves the 99 and goes for the one, those sheep might wander off. And you might end up doing this again and again and again as those sheep kind of stray off on their own. I think the point of the story here is that God's love for His children is a radical love. We might not do that, but God would. God would. And He cares for all of His children, and He pursues them, and He goes after them. So what does that mean for us in the church? What does that mean for the love and concern that we should have for our brothers and sisters in Christ? It means that when we see someone we know who is going astray, who has fallen away from the church or is drifting in their relationship with Christ, that we should go after them. We should do everything that we can to bring them back into fellowship with Christ. We should pray for them, love them, reach out to them, forgive them, restore them into the body of Christ. And that is a responsibility not just for pastors, not just for elders, but for all of us. All of us. And some of you will know of situations that I am totally unaware of. 
And some of you are going to be far closer to people where you could be more effective in reaching out to them than, say, I or an elder could in our church. We all have a responsibility in this. God values mercy and forgiveness. His desire is for restoration in the body of Christ for those that go astray. So what we see in this passage again is how the values of the kingdom are different than the values of this world. Jesus values humility. The world values status and power. What do we value? And what is it that we are asking God to produce in our life? Is it that kind of humble servant attitude? Jesus values community, interdependence. The world values independence. Are we trying to go it on our own? Are we trying to live the Christian life in our own strength? Or do we see our need to be connected to the body of Christ and to be serving and using our gifts to gather and staying connected, helping one another to grow? Jesus values mercy. His goal again is restoration. And the world values retribution. Somebody wants to wander off, let them go. Somebody's going to do that, you know, well then they're getting what they deserve kind of attitude. That's not what God is like. And that's not what He wants to see in His children. The bottom line out of all of this is we are to live like a child of the King. Having Him produce those same qualities in us that are so important to Him. Let's pray. Father, when we come to your word, we see that so often we are like the disciples. We can be competitive. We can be thinking about us and our position or our greatness or wanting others to serve us rather than to be a servant. And Father, I pray that you would mold us and shape us, make us more and more like your son who so willingly gave his life for us. Help us to be servants of God. Help us to see that as the greatest joy and blessing is to know you and to help others to know you too. And would you help our church to grow stronger in its commitment to one another and to you, to work together in harmony and unity and love, so that your name might be honored in our community and in the areas where we serve. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.